great to meet you, uh, to be together in worship this morning. Uh, if you're new or visiting with us, uh, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just a, it's a joy to have you. Um, I moved to, my wife and I moved to Hamilton uh, to do some school, um, and I had only lived in small towns before that point. Salmon Arm and Prince George really is a small town. And, um, and, and, and I was used to small town quiet. And as soon as we moved to the city, and we were kind of right near the 403, uh, very busy traffic kind of on its way to Toronto all the time, um, it was startling just how noisy it was always noisy. But within a few months, you kind of got used to the sort of the, the sound of traffic, of emergency vehicles that seemed like all day long. And, and, and after a while, it just became normal. It was just kind of this background noise, and I stopped noticing it all of a sudden. You know, some of us, um, if you were like me, I grew up with uh, sections of the Bible that I, I know so well that it's almost just like the traffic in the background. I, it's easy just to not even notice it there anymore, or, or when I read it, it's, it's just kind of like, well, I, I, I know it, and, and, I, and, I, and it can become like that traffic in the background. I think for many of us, the Lord's Prayer is like that. You may have grown up praying it like I did in, in church and even in school, that kind of a thing, and so you are very familiar with the Lord's Prayer, but it can become to us just like that kind of traffic in the background. Um, this week I was reading uh, on, on my Facebook uh, post, um, Miroslav Volf, he's a Croatian theologian, and he posted this on his, uh, his feed. Show me a bored person, and most likely it will be a person who hasn't yet learned the art of paying attention. See, whenever I slow down and begin to pay attention to the Lord's Prayer, even just a few verses, a few of the phrases, I'm always floored with the challenge and, and the depth of it. Every time I pay attention, I get lost in how much is there. In fact, as I was preparing this week, um, I got so lost in it, I said, I can only preach on like half of it, like, I don't know, three or four of the verses. I just, I can't get any more in. There's too much there. And so this morning, we are going to be working through the first chunk of the Lord's Prayer, and, and my prayer is that we would pay attention again. If it's become over-familiar to you, I hope that we can slow down and listen and see how the Lord teaches us to pray. Let's pray for that now. Father, we're thankful that uh, by your grace we can come before you in worship and celebration, and we thank you that your Spirit opens our hearts uh, to what you're saying to us this morning. We pray that you would do that, and uh, we pray that you would give us attentiveness as well that we would learn the art of slowing down and paying attention. Help us to do that. Amen. Uh, so, you know, I have a workbench at home, and um, uh, my buddy Casey helped me build that a number of years ago. And every time I want to go and, and do a project where I need my workbench, it takes me like two hours just to clear it off. <laughs> Some of you know what that workbench is like. You've got one too. You know, everything just kind of gets dumped there over the years. And so in order to actually get down and get to business, I have to take this time to sort of clear things away and, and move away the clutter. And you know what? When Jesus begins to teach us about prayer, he has to do the same thing too. He has to clear some clutter away. He doesn't just start with, here's how to pray. No, he actually has to address a few things. Number one, he addresses our wrong motives for prayer. And number two, he actually addresses our wrong beliefs about God. So before he can say anything about actually coming to God in prayer, he has to address these two things. Look at the first one, verse five. It says, and when you pray, 
Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. That's the key phrase there. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. So, you see, those who pray in order to be recognized by other people, they will probably get that recognition. But that's it, Jesus says. That's all they're going to get. All of the the joy of connecting to the Father, all of the joy of seeing their prayers answered, Jesus says, um, basically, we'll forfeit that if what we're after is human recognition. We'll get human recognition, but that's all we'll get. But fortunately, Jesus doesn't just leave us at, okay, well, don't pray like that. Okay, well, then what? Well, verse six, but when you pray, go into your room, Close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. Now, Jesus' point can't be that we would never pray in public or pray in like our small group settings because we have examples all throughout Jesus' own life as well as the life of the apostles and the early church who do that. So why does he bring it up? I think it's in order to address that attitude of being seen that um, he's addressing this want for us to be recognized as super spiritual. So he first addresses false motive and clears that out of the way, but then he has to actually address false views of God as well. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. Now that word pagans isn't one we usually use anymore, and it essentially means those who don't know the one true God. They don't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't know Israel's God. They don't know God yet. It says, don't pray like they do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. See, how we pray is is deeply influenced by our concept of the God to whom we pray. Uh, What we think about the one we're addressing, that will completely change how we approach prayer. So what does Jesus do? Well, he clears the clutter and gives us a a proper view of the Father, you might say. Verse 8 says, Do not be like them, again, those who don't know God, for your Father knows what you need, even before you ask him. Um, I was uh, writing and studying and preparing this sermon. Like I often do, I was sitting in a coffee shop. I was in in the Starbucks at Chapters. Uh, You know, I kind of get away from, well, A, I got coffee there, which is coffee. And B, um, you know, I don't have all the kind of tasks, other tasks around me to distract me. So I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm thinking about how Jesus has to clear the clutter before he can talk about prayer. He has to address false notions of prayer before he can give us a true view of that. And as I did, I actually looked up and I saw just as you enter, like right in the entrance to, to chapters, there's kind of those, those initial kiosks that have books that are particularly popular at the moment. The ones they know they're going to get people to stop and they're going to sell to these folks. Um, and, so, and so right across from um, the adult coloring books and uh, just on the other side of the sort of health and like get your body back in shape because you made a promise to just a few weeks ago uh, section, there was one that was called mindfulness and meditation. And so, you know, I, I, I know I've that, uh, that mindfulness and meditation have become really popular kind of words in our culture and practices uh, in, in our midst. And so I thought, well, let me go and actually just look at the books. Just take some time to, to shuffle through what these are about. And I saw exactly what I was expecting, 
which is essentially um, pop Buddhism for comfortable Western people. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was about, so the mindfulness and meditation wasn't about meditating on God or being mindful of him, but actually about emptying our minds of everything. Um, now, a couple things. One, first, the fact that our, uh, our culture is so interested in spirituality is, in one sense, um, a great reminder for us. It means that your neighbors care about what's going on in their insides. Uh, it means that your, your neighbors aren't afraid maybe to read about and study about and think about spiritual things. That should, should trigger in us a sense, uh, those of us who are Christians and who think it's important to, to speak truthfully about our faith, reminds us that our, our neighbors actually want to talk about spirituality. So you don't have to be afraid of that kind of, or think, ah, oh, they don't want to have anything to do with, with God. No, well, maybe they do. Maybe that just triggers that for us. So that's one positive thing. Um, but the other thing I'd say, on the other hand, um, is that a Christian view of prayer starts with a Christian view of, of God, the one to whom we pray. So when, when I say prayer, when I say meditation, and when I say spirituality, as a Christian, I mean something vastly different than the majority of people do uh, in our world when they use those same words. And so we have to, we have to know that there is a, a significant distinction, um, and that distinction actually matters. If Buddhism says empty your mind, that's what meditation is, Christianity says actually fill it up with Jesus. Blessed is he who meditates on God's law day and night. They're like a tree planted by streams of water, Psalm 1. What are we doing in meditation? Thinking about God's ways. Thinking, uh, Colossians 3, uh, dwell richly on the message of Christ. When we are in, when we're praying, our minds are actually engaged with the living God. And so meditation in a, in a Christian um, view of things is filling up your mind with Jesus and what he's done and celebrating that. So, um, Jesus tells us, do not pray like those who do not know your Father God. We need to take Jesus' teaching then on prayer with utter seriousness and thoughtfulness. So how do we pray? This brings us to the Lord's Prayer in verse 9. This then is how you should pray, Jesus tells us. But notice, how doesn't necessarily mean only use these words. Um, it, is, it gives us a pattern for prayer or an outline or a model of prayer. The Lucan version in Luke uh, 9 says, when you pray, say, and then gives us these words. So in one hand, I, I would say this, I pray the words of the Lord's Prayer and I pray the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. I think we, we actually are given um, both of those things are open possibilities. Martin Luther, the great 16th century reformer, he did both. He started praying the Lord's Prayer word for word. Then he went back through it and inserted everything that God was calling him to as a pattern of prayer following that. So we use both set prayer that Jesus gives us and we use it as a pattern. That's just common. And then notice when Jesus says, okay, this is how you should pray, he starts not with a request. There's no petition start, just an address, a coming to God. And Jesus says, when you come to God, do it like this. Our Father. Two things, real quick. Our Father. This prayer, and praying it, puts us in relation with God. 
We don't have to carry on, Jesus says, praying uh, as though we're trying to get God's attention, as though he's aloof, we're trying to wake him up, we're trying to get him onto our side. No, not at all. Jesus said simply, pray our Father. He's there. Just as a, as a child runs to their dad, and you know when I come in from work, one of my favorite things is that my kids run to me, Daddy, they say, and they jump into my arms. When we pray, we pray, Our Father. It is because of God's grace, because of what Jesus accomplishes for us in giving up his life on a Roman cross and being raised to life again, that we are able to come into this sort of relationship to be his beloved children. But second, just notice, it says, our Father, plural pronoun. Not only does this prayer put us in relation to the Father, but actually in relation to each other too. Just imagine there are approximately 2 billion Christians around the globe today. Many, many, many of those have prayed this prayer just today. You have just been put, when we pray this, we are joining the communion of all of God's people around the globe in prayer. We are in relation to the rest of the Christian community. And not only in our time, but this goes back to the time that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Christians have been praying it for the last 2,000 years. This prayer puts us in relation with each other. The next thing Jesus begins is to give us uh, the things that we would speak to God about. And you'll notice the first chunk of the Lord's Prayer, the, the part we're looking at today, focuses exclusively on God, not on us. And it focuses on three things, God's glory, God's will, and God's kingdom. God's kingdom than his will. That's kind of the order of it. So it focuses on God, but there's intense and deep implications for us as we pray these prayers. So let's look at that together. What does it mean for us to pray these? First, Jesus says, we pray, our Father, hallowed be your name. Now, it's not a word we use very often in our culture. The NLT translates, I think, quite faithfully, may your name be honored. We have to notice this in, in two maybe ways it means more than this, but let's look at two of them. First, to pray, may your name be honored means in me, in my life today. And then as we pray, may your name be honored in my life today, the, the flip side of the coin is, is actually confession. And God, I recognize that your name has not played a large enough role in my life. I want I want who you are to play a more significant part. So it comes both as a prayer that God's God's, God's glory would be seen in and through us. But, but more than that, too, we're actually repenting of, of where we haven't let God's name have reign in us. Uh, second, to pray this prayer, may your name be honored, is actually a recognition that God's name isn't honored in places all around the world. So we're praying, God, may your name be seen as holy May it be lifted up among all the people of the world, especially those who have never heard about you. This becomes a prayer of mission. It's a longing to see God's name celebrated. Uh, Matt Redman has a song that goes, um, let worship be the fuel for mission's flame. What's he saying there? It's, he says, we're going with a passion for your name we're, that everyone would celebrate and, and bring praise to God. That is what leads us into mission. It's a desire to see God's name lifted up. So it's that, that's at the heart of what Christian mission is about. And this prayer drives us into that mission. As we, um, and actually that's a big, 
part of what Jesus tells us to focus on next here. Hallowed be your name. And then he says, what do we pray from there? Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, God's kingdom means essentially God's reign. Any place where God is, is in charge. And of course we would say, well, God is already reigning. He is already the sovereign over all creation. But he has, in his sovereignty, allowed us, his image-bearing creatures, to make real decisions as well. To choose to either place our lives in accordance with his kingdom or not. You can really make that choice. And to pray your kingdom come then (laughs) is acknowledging that that we've actually set ourselves up in so many ways as kings or queens of our own lives. In fact, the broken world that we find ourselves in is a result of that. A result actually of how humans have been treasonous toward the true king. This prayer then brings us back into right relation with God. Your kingdom come in me, in my life. In fact, it takes the whole Bible to tell the story of God's kingdom coming and how he will finally and fully allow his kingdom to reign. And, and I think, um, you know, to say your kingdom come is also to say reign in my life and our life as a church. It's logically linked in that sense to, to submission, to surrender, your kingdom, not mine. And it links to that next section that says your will be done. This is actually a prayer that Jesus prayed on the night that he was betrayed. Some of you will know that story. When, when Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, he goes and he prays to his father and basically says, Father, I don't want to do this. It's going to hurt too much. It's going to cost so much. I don't want to. Then what's Jesus' prayer? Not what I want. He, he, he names what he wants and what he doesn't want. He says, but not what I want, but your will be done. What's the result of that? What happens as a result of Jesus saying, yes, God, to your will? Boy, he makes redemption of the whole cosmos possible. He lays down his life that we can come home to the Father. So let's just think this one through. We might pray, uh, your will be done, Lord. But the question that comes to us as we pray that is this, are we committed to finding out what God really wants for us? You know, I often meet people who are facing like tough decisions. Often it has to do with like their relationships or how they, how they proceed with a, maybe, maybe a bit of an ethical dilemma. And, and they're, they're working out, okay, what's, you know, and the tension they feel is the right thing, the thing God is calling them to do and what might work best or be easiest for them. And they say things like this, I'll, I'm going to pray about it. I'll pray for God's will, which is great. But, but the question then is this, are you going to take the time to study God's word and find out what he's actually said? Because so many of these issues, he's actually revealed his will to us through the spirit-inspired scriptures. So we have to address God's will with a serious measure of what we call spiritual humility. It's the humility to know that my bent is to find the easy way, is to find the way that sort of supports what I already want. 
rather than saying, ah, God, in seeking your will, I'm going to be ready. Even if I don't like what, I, what you tell me, I, I'm going to seek that out and, and find out what you're all about. And so, see, we can actually use prayers like, you know, I'm going to pray for God's will to be done. We can use our prayer to avoid God and what God is asking of us. I know that's a serious charge, but I know it personally because I experience it. I have to wrestle with it too. I have to wrestle with the humility to say, God, do I really want to know your will? Do I really want to do it? I can talk myself into or out of all kinds, believing all kinds of things like God is honoring my decision, when in fact he may not be at all, but I'm ignoring him or I'm shutting out certain aspects of the scriptures because I know what they're going to ask of me. So I have to be aware of, and you have to be aware of with spiritual humility, that we can actually make stuff up rather than truly seek out what God wants for us. So to pray, your will be done, requires us to a commitment to search out the scriptures and be prepared to surrender and submit to wherever they lead. That will take humility. That's the kind that we see in Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is also a prayer of longing. See, even though God has already initiated or inaugurated his kingdom, um, when Jesus came and, and when the Holy Spirit was given to the church, God's kingdom is now, we would say, present, but it's not finally and fully, uh, it hasn't finally and fully come yet. We're still waiting for Jesus to return, to intervene, to, to banish evil from the world and to usher in the new heavens and new earth. This reunion of heaven and earth is a central element, maybe the central element of the storyline of the Bible. It's what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are up to. And so we're invited to live into that. And I think this next video will help make clear how, what we're praying for when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Check this out. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. 
works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die. But that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming 
to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. Now I know for some of you that might have seemed a bit cheeky. Um, Theologically speaking, this is bang on. This is the storyline of the Bible. This is what God is up to. And when we pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're making an honest request of God. We're requesting that heaven and earth, God's space and ours, would be reunited again. We're asking that Jesus return to to set that up. We're in line with what, in fact, we we read in the last chapter of, of, of Revelation, in chapter 22, it ends with this prayer, come, Lord Jesus. We're praying that when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We are also, however, as Jesus' followers, just like those purple dots, that we are to be spread throughout the earth and participate in Jesus' life-giving ministry. Just consider the refugee initiative that we're taking on here as a church. This is one way, a small way of us saying, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to lean into your healing of what is now broken. We want to be a part of, of, uh, of freedom for things that are in bondage right now. We want to participate in your peace and your just reign. But it's not just maybe sort of those maybe bigger things. Think of it. Our kids are upstairs right now learning that God loves them and that he forgives them. And he's calling them into a life of, of following him. In that sense, we're preparing and, and, and inviting our kids to live into this same story. Yes, we're like those purple dots that are called to to go throughout and be spread throughout um, the world, throughout the realm of sin and death. You know, that's exactly what Paul says of us, the church, that we are that overlap of of God's space and and human space, that we are God's temple. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, 16. It says, don't you know that you yourselves, maybe a better translation is that you together, it is a plural you. Don't you know that y'all, <laughs> you guys, that's how you say it in Hamilton. Don't you know that you guys are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in your midst? Wow. Where is God's temple? Is it a stone building located in a static location? The answer is no. You, God's people, are God's temple. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has brought us together has formed us into his people. That's why unity is so incredibly important. Why Jesus will go on to talk about the significance of repentance and forgiveness. And not just the forgiveness we get from God, but the forgiveness that we grant to others. Listen to what Paul concludes this section. He says, you are God's temple. Therefore, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. And you, together, are that temple. Wow. No wonder Jesus and later the apostles will make such a big deal of Christian unity. Of our, Jesus will tell us to actively seek out 
those that we know might have something against us. Before we go to worship, what do we need to do? We need to find out if someone has something against us. And we are active participants in getting things right. If we are not actively seeking to bring together God's church, we might actually be working against God himself. And listen to Paul's warning there. It's a big deal. And we'll talk more about forgiveness next week in the second part of the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to conclude here and invite the worship team in a moment, not quite yet. But I want us to go right back to the very beginning of Jesus' teaching. Right back to verse 5 where Jesus says, And when you pray, not if, but when. We're given clear instruction. Uh, We're given a greater view of God and what it means to connect with him. But at its heart, this section isn't just about knowing more about prayer or knowing more about God. It's concerned with us actually praying. And when you pray. Uh, Simon Chan, a Korean theologian, he makes the important point that there are really two, um, two ways of envisioning theology. And in fact, these need to overlap and and interlock as well. Uh, When we say theology, we usually mean thinking thought, you know, some definitions are thinking God's thoughts after him. We think theology is sort of, it's a descriptive task. What is God like? It's an intellectual task. That's true. Simon Chan calls it secondary theology. Oh, that means there's something else. Another sort of theology that's even more uh, of, uh, uh, more essential, more basic. As Jesus has taught us, it really does matter what we think. Secondary theology matters deeply. Right? Jesus tells us that our meditation, our prayer isn't thoughtlessness. It's not emptying our minds like Eastern spiritualities think uh, of prayer or meditation. It engages our minds too. But Chan points out that primary theology is doxology, the actual praise and worship of God. A person could engage their whole life in biblical studies, in reading uh, historic theology, in wrestling with difficult intellectual issues, and never pray. Never turn that work into the praise of God, to primary theology, to the one thing we must do. Of course, doxology requires us to have understanding. It includes thinking well about God, But it is more than simply thinking well about him. It's the actual engagement with God in praise. You see, there's an experiential element of Christian prayer as well as an intellectual element. Both need to be present. We we actually must experience God in prayer and worship and adoration. And when you pray, Jesus tells us, when you engage in adoration of the Father, that's primary theology. Um, Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8. This is one example of, of how this has to be experiential too. He says this, The spirit you received does not make you a slave so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, which is a tender word, Daddy, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. Christian prayer, you see, has this experiential element too. Here's what theologian John Murray, a Scottish guy, here's how he describes it. He writes, it is necessary for us to recognize that there is an intelligent mysticism in the life of faith. 
of living union and communion with the exalted and ever-present Redeemer. He communes with his people, and his people commune with him in conscious reciprocal love. The life of true faith cannot be that of cold, metallic assent or just thinking. It must have the passion and warmth of love and communion because communion with God is the crown and apex of true religion. Murray speaks of an intelligent mysticism. This isn't the mysticism of any other sort of faith, <laughs> but it's what Paul speaks of, saying that God's spirit, and there's a specific reference he's talking about there, not just any old spiritual something, God's spirit communes with our spirit and bears witness with our hearts that we're his children. As Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father. And that places us in deep union with the one true creator God. Jesus invites us to experience intimacy and awe in our prayer. See, to pray our Father is to place us in this incredibly close, intimate relationship with, here's the crazy part, the Almighty it's to experience the awesome wonder of drawing near to the God who spoke the universe into being. The writer of Hebrews says this, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence. It's a word that means holy fear and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This consuming fire is the one we draw near to as close as can be and say, Father, Daddy, how can that be? Here's how. It's because Jesus, the one in whom heaven and earth perfectly interlock and overlap, he laid his life down in our place so that we could be made acceptable to go into the very throne room of God, to come before the consuming fire as children of our Father. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And as they do, I'm going to invite you to stand. And together, if this is your prayer, would you pray it truthfully today? This prayer that will transform us as it draws us into deep relationship with God our Father. Stand and pray this together with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.